Spratt. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And we started a little project about uh, five years ago here at Jericho. And it's a project that we're on a walk, perhaps maybe more a leisurely stroll because of our pace, but uh, it's taken us five years. We're on a leisurely stroll through the Old Testament in our summer teaching series. And one of the things that we realize is that the Bible can be a little bit of a confusing book when you first begin to explore it. And particularly the Old Testament, because sometimes when you read it, like you read a summer mystery novel, left to right, you get bogged down in some of the parts of it. And so every now and then it can be helpful to just step back from the very specifics and look at a little bit more of the trajectory of the Old Testament so that you don't miss the forest uh, for the trees. So as a teaching team, we've been working at this for the last number of summers to help us understand and grow in our understanding of the big story that God is telling in the pages of the Old Testament. And so we began in the summer of 2011 with a series in Genesis called Beginnings, History, Mystery, and Theology in Genesis, because you should start at the very beginning. That's a very good place to start. And then we moved into the book of Exodus, and in Exodus, there's so many rich examples of God working with people as he delivers his people from slavery, and he demonstrates again and again his mighty power to save from incredibly challenging circumstances. God leads his people through the wilderness, and we begin to see them forsaking him time and time again. And then in 2013, we did Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua in one summer, Oh, yes, we did. And we called it crossing over because this was the period where they'd come to the edge of the wilderness, but they weren't quite ready to enter into the promised land that God had given to them. And so we explored that interface between life on the edge of faith, where there's elements of doubt wrapped up in our faith, that uh, we live in that kind of place where we cross over and back. Then we moved into the book of 1 Samuel, and we did a series called Games and Thrones. And I tried desperately in the summer of 2014 to rent the Game of Thrones thrones and put it on the stage because it was at the PE that year. But they didn't want to take it off site or some liability issue, you know, toddlers are climbing on it or something like that. So I tried in, in everyone's defense. Uh, but then we moved into the book of 2 Samuel last summer. And we see that David is built his kingdom, and yet it begins to fall apart so quickly and fracture. And now this summer, we come to the book of First Kings. And First Kings is a fascinating part in the Old Testament. We begin to explore the life of Solomon in the first 11 chapters of First Kings. And so Solomon's life becomes a bit of a window for us to look at the theme of wisdom. And what does it mean to actually be wise? How could we build wisdom in our life? What is true wisdom? How would we get it? How would we develop it or grow it? What are the building blocks of wisdom in our own 
lives and in our day and time. And so as a staff team, as a teaching team, each of us will take a turn through the course of the summer. And our prayer and our heart for this series is that you would grow and all of us would grow in wisdom. That God would just raise the wisdom quotient in your life by his Holy Spirit, pour an increase of wisdom into you for his glory. Because friends, even watching the news this last week, I was reminded again that our world is just so ripped apart by conflict and by strife and hatred and racism and violence and so many other aspects that are evidence that there is a lack of wisdom in our world. And so we want to be people who walk with wisdom and respond to the things that come our way and walk with a wisdom that then invites other people to consider the source of wisdom. So let me pray as we begin and jump into this series and ask that God would do that in each of our hearts. So God, we thank you that you are the source of wisdom. We thank you that you desire to pour it into our hearts. And so Father, we open our hearts, Spirit of Jesus, to receive that which you have to offer. Your word reminds us if we lack wisdom, we can ask you and you're going to give it to us. You're going to pour it out generously without finding fault. And so Jesus, we want to embrace that. We want to walk in that. We want to grow in that. Would you do that in each heart and life through the course of our times together and through your word and by the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as we flip the page from the book of 2 Samuel to the book of 1 Kings, we've got a few characters to refresh our memories about. And the first one is David. What do we know about King David? Do you remember some things? Just shout them out. What do we remember about David and David's life? Goliath. Goliath, absolutely. We have that story where he defeats a giant, just a high point in the life, his own personal life and in one of the books. Yeah, what else? Abigail, we've got Jonathan, his friendship with Jonathan. Yeah, we've got his marriage too and his wife Abigail, who's also referenced as a person of wisdom. What else do we know about David? Bathsheba, we have examples in David's life of uh, decisions that were not wise and where he doesn't follow after God's heart and laws. What else do we know about David? He likes to dance. That's right. Yeah, he was a musician. He was a worship leader. He liked to dance. Yeah, what else do we know about him? Psalms. Yeah, he wrote a lot of the Psalms. Yeah, what else? He was at war. Yeah, he was a a very violent individual such that we read in Chronicles, God says to him, you have too much blood on your hands, David. I'm not going to let you build the temple. That's going to be up to your son, Solomon. Yeah. What else? He did. He held a grudge. There are numerous examples of he held a grudge. And I'm not going to read all of 1 Kings chapter 2, but one of the last things David says to his son Solomon is, hey, there's a few people I need you to kill for me. Well, <laughs> because I'm going to die and I can't really get up and do it from my deathbed, so I need you to take care of that for me. Yeah. Mm. He lived with sheep. That's right. Yeah, we know a lot about David's life. Now, If we flip over to his son Solomon, what do we know about Solomon's life? Let's look a little bit ahead and see what are some of the things you know about Solomon. Shout them out. A lot of wives. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 
lots of wisdom. Absolutely, yeah. He's referenced both in biblical literature and then in other ancient sources as the wisest person who has ever lived. What else do we know about him? The temple. He builds the temple. It's one of the major projects to the fact that there's actually some of it, just a very, very small portion of it, still standing today, thousands of years later. What else do we know? He was wealthy. Yeah, wealthy actually beyond uh, our capacity to fathom. One of the texts that says that silver and gold were so plentiful in, under his reign that they were just worthless. They were like just common. It was like, oh, so you have a bunch of gold. Whatever, you know, we have so much of that around here. We don't need any more. What else do we know about him? Bathsheba was Solomon's mother. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to see her make an appearance in this story. Because in 1 Kings chapter 1, we see that David is still alive and Solomon isn't king just yet. David is 70 years old as we begin the book of 1 Kings. And we actually learn some things about David's history that are maybe a little less than polite. And we see that David's actions actually uh, are something of a blueprint for disaster in the life of his family. So turn with me in your Bibles or on your devices to 1 Kings chapter 1. We're going to look today at sections of chapter 1 and 2. And in these chapters, there's nine characters. It's a bit like a Shakespearean play to kind of keep track of all of these people. So uh, I've brought a little bit of help here to kind of uh, help us remember who's who, all right? So this is going to be King David for us. He's a little bit, you know, older and, and a little more tufted and rough around the edges. So we've got David, and then we have one of David's sons, Adonijah. So this is Adonijah. And then we have one of David's other sons, Solomon. All right, so these are our three. We have David, we have Adonijah, and we have Solomon. And we have a few people that come to play on each of these guys who are going to be forming a bit of, of a team. So there's lots of kind of schemes that go on early in the book of First Kings. So what happens in First Kings chapter 1 is Adonijah decides that he wants to be the king. And so he recruits some very powerful helpers to help him establish that. So we have Joab, who is, if you remember Joab, he was in charge of David's army. So there's Joab. And then Adonijah also recruits one of the high priests to help him with this task. So Adonijah has his little cohorts, his little cronies, and they go off, and Adonijah begins to think to himself, you know what? My dad is old, like really old. You know, he's not doing a lot of kingly stuff now, and you know what? I think it's time for me to be the king. Adonijah's three older brothers have died. We had rebellions that broke out in David's family, some of which we talked about last weekend. And so Adonijah decides, you know what? If they're dead, it's my turn. I am going to make myself the king. 
And so he takes Joab, the commander of the army, and he takes Abathar, the priest, into his confidence, and they agree that they're going to help him become the king. Now, Zadok, the priest, who's the other high priest, he sides with Solomon over on this side. And then we also have the captain of David's bodyguard who sides with Solomon as well. So you see, these guys are dogs because they're very loyal. So dogs are loyal. No offense to cat people, but dogs are loyal. They're going to take the side of David's family. And these guys are rats. They're going to try and wrest the throne away from David while he is still alive. And so then David's son, Adonijah, goes to the stone of Zoleth near the spring, and he sacrifices sheep and cattle and fatted calves, and he invites all of his brothers to come. I don't have any more room on the music stand and no more stuffies, but he invites all of his brothers to come, and he proclaims himself to be the new king. But he doesn't invite Solomon, and he doesn't invite the high priest, and he doesn't invite the captain of the bodyguard. He just excludes them. And at this party, he proclaims himself to be the new king over the nation. Now, let's pause the story for a minute and think about this. Adonijah has decided that he wants to be the king. See, David hasn't said anything about this. David hasn't ever said to Adonijah, Adonijah, you know, you're my eldest. You're going to be next in line for the throne. David was only the second king that Israel had ever known. There really weren't well-established succession practices in place for any of this. So Adonijah just assumes to himself, you know what? I am the oldest. I should be the king. Typical eldest child thinking, right? I'm an eldest. I can say that. Adonijah's behavior, it reminds me of a bit of a Disney song from The Lion King. Can you guess which one it is? Yes, what does Simba sing? Do you remember? Oh, I just can't wait to be king. That's right, exactly. So he just decides to himself, you know what, I'm not going to wait. I'm just going to be the king. And we've already seen in David's family that Absalom, his son, has tried this and has risen up against David and tried to be king. And it threw the nation into incredible turmoil and resulted in many deaths. And then we've seen David's second son, Amnon, has been killed as well. And his third son, we believe, died at a young age. So we see a bit of a pattern here in David's life. We're beginning to see a bit of a blueprint for disaster. You see, David may have been a person after God's own heart, but we're beginning to see that he was a lousy dad. We see this in his interactions with his sons. There's this leniency and permissiveness that seeps into his life in his parenting. And so in all of these other areas of his life, he's so mature, he's so godly, he does acts with wisdom, and then in his home life, it's a total disaster. In Proverbs chapter 13, verse 1, we read, A wise child accepts a parent's discipline, but a mocker refuses to listen to correction. See, a wise child receives appropriate discipline or correction. But here's the problem. David never offered it. Like at all. Ever. So Adonijah's selfish and harmful actions that are a complete affront and are offensive to his father begin to make a bit more sense 
to us because his father never said anything to him. And here's where we see a bit of a blueprint for disaster take shape for those of us who are parents. So the lesson that we see in David's life is lesson number one, if you want disaster later in your life, don't discipline your kids, like at all, ever. Listen to how David's parenting of Adonijah is described in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5. Now his father, Adonijah's father, King David, never had disciplined him at any time, not even by asking, why are you doing that? Like just a question, not even a correction. Never asked him at all. Adonijah had been born next after Absalom, and he was very handsome. Never even a question for Adonijah. Not even a suggestion in a direction. Never a no. Never a, Adonijah, I don't think you should do that. Or not even, why are you doing that? Nothing. This is not the pathway of wisdom. This is a pathway of folly. Proverbs 13 Verse 24, does not mince words. Those who love their children care enough to discipline them. See, discipline, when it's appropriately administered, is done out of love. It's a demonstration of love. Because failure to impart correction to someone that you love when they're walking down a wrong path, when you know that that will bear negative consequences in their life, is not love. So parents, if you want disaster later in your life, let your kids do whatever they want, however they want, for as long as they want. Ask them no questions and never discipline them at any time. It's a recipe for disaster. Kids, you need to understand something here. That when your parents discipline you in appropriate ways, I hope that they are doing it out of love and with a desire to develop and produce wisdom in your life over the long term. Proverbs 29.15 says this, to discipline a child produces in them wisdom, but a mother is disgraced by an undisciplined child. See, Adonijah becomes a disgrace to his father later in his life because he's never experienced any discipline whatsoever. He was not corrected by his dad earlier in his life to choose a wise path. So kids, I know it sounds weird to your young ears, but when your parents discipline you and when they correct you, when they're limiting your freedom in some way as a means of correction, when it's done appropriately, I want you to hear that they're doing it for your own good. Their deep desire is to create wisdom in your life. Now, it does not feel like that at the time to you. I totally understand that and get it. But they want to help you make wise choices. Maybe not each incidence, you know, they'll get it all right. But for having the courage to love you well, and to shape your character and responses, you'll thank them later. No discipline equals disaster. That's the first of four lessons we're going to see in this particular text this morning, in this story between David 
and Adonijah. So two of the lessons we'll see with David and Adonijah are negative, and then two of the lessons we'll see what David wants to pass on to Solomon are positive. So if you want to create a blueprint for disaster, first, zero discipline, ever. Secondly, if you want disaster, leave really important things like who should be the next king totally and completely nebulous so that no one has a clue what's going on. The question, though, of who's going to be the next king after David is a pretty important question. But David hasn't been active in shaping this. But you know what? We actually read in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 9, that David actually knows who's going to be the next king. David's talking to God in 1 Chronicles 22, and God says to him, David, your son Solomon will be the next king. He will build a temple for me. So here's my question. If David knew this, that Solomon was going to be the next king, why didn't he tell people this? So a few people know, because we see here Bathsheba actually knows. Bathsheba says, my lord the king, didn't you make a vow? Didn't you say to me, your son Solomon will be the next king? So Bathsheba knows about it. Uh, the prophet Nathan knows about this. So how did Adonijah miss this? And how did all of David's other sons and Joab and the high priests miss this important piece of information? So the Bathsheba and Nathan actually have to come to David in a hurry and say, um, uh, David, we're just a little concerned here about this whole Adonijah thing. And David says, what Adonijah thing? What's going on? Well, he's gone and made himself the king. Did you say that he should be the king? Well, no, I didn't say that he should be the king. Uh, Solomon's going to be the king. Well, did you tell anybody else that Solomon was going to be the king? Oh, no, I kind of forgot about that. We come to see that David actually didn't stand up and make a clear point of communicating what he knew that God had told him to be true. And friends, this is a bit of a blueprint for disaster in any area of our lives. If you know that something is important, particularly if you know that it's something that God has told you to do or to be, and then you've told your wife and maybe one son and the prophet Nathan, the high priest knows it, people should know about it if it's important. And David leaves this foggy. You know what? David, though, isn't the only one that struggles with this. There's times in each of our lives where something's really important and it makes great sense to us and we've thought it all out in our heads and then we fail to communicate it out to people in a way that's meaningful for them. And sometimes, you know, this happens here at, at Jericho Ridge and I'll do this sometimes. Sometimes it's super clear in my head what we're doing, why we're doing it, you know, who's in charge, what's going on. And then clear processes in my head, and then I fail to articulate that to people around me effectively, and they go, why are we doing this? And I think, well, it's totally clear. Doesn't everybody know that? But that's on me, right, to try and grow in that area. There's an old pastor saying, and the pastor's saying is, if there's mist in the pulpit, there's fog in the pews. And what that means is if it's a bit unclear to leadership what's happening and how it's going to happen and all of those types of things, then it's going to be really unclear for other people. And so that's something I'm working on and growing in, and I want you as a community to help your pastor and the staff team and leadership do that, because if it's important, it should be clear. It shouldn't be nebulous or left 
up to chance, or people are. I'm sure they'll all figure it out eventually. David failed to do this, and it actually created a sense of turmoil and instability in his family and in the kingdom as a whole. So let's see how this plays itself out, because our story continues. We have a few more players in our story. We have Bathsheba. So Bathsheba comes in, and she's going to talk to David and say to him, uh, excuse me, my lord, the king, you know, why or is this going on? And then we have also the prophet Nathan, and he's going to come in and talk to David as well and tell David what's up. So follow along in 1 Kings. We'll start reading in chapter 1 in verse 17. Bathsheba comes in and says, My Lord, you made a vow before the Lord when you said to me, Your son Solomon will be the next king. He'll sit on the throne. Uh, But instead, Adonijah has made himself the next king. And my Lord, the king doesn't even know about it. He sacrificed cattle and fatted calves and sheep and invited all the king's son to attend the celebration. He's invited Abitar the priest. He's invited Joab, the commander of the army. But he didn't invite your servant Solomon. And now, my Lord, the king, all of Israel is waiting for you to announce who will become king after you. If you do not act, my son Solomon and I will be treated as criminals as soon as my Lord, the king, has died. While she was still speaking to the king, the prophet Nathan came in. And the king's officials told him, Nathan the prophet's here to see you. So Nathan went in and he bowed before the king. And he said, Nathan asked, my lord the king, have you decided that Adonijah will be the next king and that he will sit on the throne? Because today he's gone out, he sacrificed cattle, fatted calf sheep, he's invited all the king's son to attend the celebration, he's invited the commanders of the army, Abadar the priest, and they're feasting and they're drinking with him and they're shouting, long live king Adonijah. But he didn't invite me. And he didn't invite Zadok the priest. And he didn't invite Nathan, the prophet, and Benaiah, the son of Jothan, protector of the king's bodyguard. And has my lord the king really done this without letting any of his officials know who would be the next king? King David responded, call Bathsheba. She came back in. She stood before the king. The king repeated all the things that he said. As surely as the Lord lives, who's rescued me from every danger, your son Solomon is going to be the next king. And he will sit on this throne this very day, just as I vowed to you. So King David said, call Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet. When they came, the king said to them, take Solomon and my officials and down to the spring. Solomon is to ride on my own mule. Verse 34, Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet are to anoint him king over Israel. They're to blow the ram's horn and they're to shout, long live King Solomon. And then I want you to escort him back here and he will sit on my throne and he will succeed me as king for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Amen, they said. And may the Lord be with Solomon as he's been with you, my Lord, the king. And may he make Solomon's reign even greater than yours. And so they did this. And all the people shouted, long live King Solomon. Verse 40, all the people followed Solomon into Jerusalem, playing flutes and shouting for joy. And the celebration was so joyous and noisy that the earth shook with the sound. So this is where Adonijah's ride as king comes to a screeching halt. Because he's having his own little self-inauguration party, and he and his guests, they hear music, and they hear noise, and there's a, what's, what's going on over there? Like, what, is there some other party that we didn't know about? And they say, yeah, it's Solomon's coronation party. Everybody's excited. David has now announced that Solomon's going to be the next king. And so all the guests at Adonijah's party realize immediately, ooh, we have chosen incorrectly. 
and they all hightail it out of there, leaving Adonijah a very frightened and confused man. And he doesn't know what to do. And so he runs into the temple and he throws himself onto the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. And he asks that Solomon would spare his life. And Solomon exercises wisdom. Solomon says, if you show yourself to be a person of character, you will live. If not, you will die. And we see that Adonijah actually in chapter 2 makes trouble and is in fact killed. (laughs) Because he's not a person of wisdom. And I'll let you explore that story in chapter 2 on your own. And actually, Joab dies as well. Because David puts the hit on him after. And then the priest, he says, you know what? Solomon says, you're a priest. I'll let you just go live, but I don't want to never see you again. And so we never see or hear from him again. (laughs) So that's the story of Adonijah's short-lived kingship. And one of the things that we want to help you understand as we move through the book of 1 Kings is that wisdom is built over time by the decisions that we undertake and by the way in which we live our lives. That's why we're using the image of a blueprint to describe this series. Because wisdom is something that you develop over time as you think and act in congruence with God's heart and his plan. And so each week over the course of the summer, we're going to add another building block to our tower or our wall of wisdom as we look at different aspects of wise living. And so one of the aspects of living with wisdom that we want to highlight today is that your actions have consequences, and your past actions have consequences for your future. People that are wise understand this, and so they live and act and think carefully. We see this with David. David's actions as a parent in the past have consequences for his family in the future, negative ones, in fact. We see this with Adonijah. His actions lead Solomon not to trust him. He proves himself so untrustworthy that he's actually killed in chapter 2. Our past actions have future consequences. This is repeated as and echoed at various places throughout the biblical witness. In the New Testament, we see this reflected in phrases like, you're going to reap what you sow. And we see this time and time again. But we think of this phrase a lot of times, at least I think of this phrase in negative terms. Oh yeah, my past actions are going to catch up with future consequences for me. But there's also an incredibly positive aspect to this. That if we walk with wisdom, that it actually builds itself. The actions that we take that are wise build into our lives a pathway of wisdom over time that we can reap the rewards of. And so our actions can not only be a blueprint for failure, but they can also be a blueprint for success. So let's flip this over because we see this very clearly in David's instructions to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 2. Let me read 1 Kings 2 verses 1 to 4. As the time of King David's death approached, he gives this charge to his son Solomon. I'm going where everyone on earth must someday go. This is a euphemistic phrase to say, I am dying. Take courage and be a man. Observe the requirements of the Lord your God and follow all of his ways. Keep the decrees, the commands, the regulations, and the laws written in the law of Moses so that you will be successful in all you do wherever you go. And if you do this, the Lord will keep the promise that he made to me. 
And he told me, if your descendants live as they should and they follow me faithfully with all of their hearts and their souls, one of them will always sit on the throne of Israel. David here is facing his own death and he's passing on instructions about living with wisdom to his son. And one of the key elements that he says to Solomon is that if you want to live with wisdom, be strong and be brave. Because this is something that we overlook, that at this point in Solomon's life, Solomon was probably about 12 years old. So Solomon doesn't have this massive repository of life to draw on to lead God's people as their king. David says to him, Solomon, you've got development ahead of you still. And so one of the things you need to do is dig in and be strong and be brave because you're ascending to the throne in a time of political and global upheaval. There's a lot of things that need intentionality and attention. And so David looks his 12-year-old son in the eyes as he's dying and says, you need to be brave and be strong. Because he knows it takes courage to face down the challenges of life. David needs courage to look at his own death and accept it. Solomon is inheriting this massive mantle of responsibility. It takes courage to accept it. And David reminds both himself and them and one of us that one of the things that accompanies wisdom is courage to act. I love the way that American author Mark Twain puts this. And he says, with courage, you will dare to take risks. You will have the strength to be compassionate, the wisdom to be humble, because courage is the foundation of integrity. Courage, not reckless courage, but courage is the foundation of integrity. Not a brash, irresponsible desire and impulse to act like Adonijah, but a wisdom to face down the challenges of life with a sense that God is with you. That's true courage, and it's part of the blueprint of success as opposed to failure. The fourth and final lesson that David imparts to Solomon in this passage is a lesson for each of us, and that is, lesson four, do what God tells you. Walk in the path that he shows you. We see this in 1 Kings 2, verse 3. Observe the requirements and laws of the Lord your God. Follow God's ways. Keep his instructions, keep his commands, his decrees, his regulations, the laws written in the laws of Moses, so that you will be successful in all that you do and wherever you go. See, in the Bible, wisdom is often described as a path that we walk on or a path or a direction that we choose. In Proverbs 4, verse 11, it says, I will teach you wisdom's ways and lead you in the straight path. Or in Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6, it says, Seek God's will in all that you do, and he will show you what path to take. Do you want to be wise? Do what God asks you to do. When God makes something clear to you, do it. Walk in it, even if it doesn't always make perfect sense. Now, this isn't to say that God is going to make everything 
perfectly clear to you that a voice from the sky will booming like how go from heaven and say, do this. There are often times when we're just invited to use wisdom that God has given us to walk out a path. But when we do that, there's an attitude of our heart, that, and that is the language of a path to path, so from people around us, listen to instructions that he's giving you in his word, slow down, make sure that you're walking in wisdom along the path that God shows to you. Because let's remind ourselves of the building block here, that our, our past actions will have consequences. And so in the past, if you're willing to walk and listen to what it is that God is telling you and be faithful to be walk in the path that he's laid out for you, there'll be consequences for that. But there'll be consequences that are blessings that come into your life as a result of being consistently willing to walk in obedience to what it is that God is showing you. Our past actions have future consequences. And on the negative end of the spectrum, we can ask ourselves questions like, well, are there anything in my life today that if it was left unattended, it could grow into something very negative? What are bad things in my life that if I don't uproot them, if I don't get rid of them in some way, they're going to cause me trouble later on? For me, the picture in my mind goes to a garden with weeds in it. We have a garden plot, and I'm finding that if I don't deal with weeds early in their growth cycle, they grow so quickly, and they just choke out other good things that want to grow there. And this is true in our lives as well. There can be things, bad things, that are small maybe right now, but they can become much bigger and much more harmful later on. Let me give you a specific example. Maybe lying. If you don't speak the truth to people around you, you don't stop it. That grows and grows and grows. And as it grows in your life, it actually chokes out trust and erodes trust from people around you because then they begin to believe that they can't believe you and that you're not a person of your word. And when you erode a foundation of trust by not telling the truth consistently, relationships can collapse. Your present and past actions can have future consequences. So that's on the negative end, but think about it in the positive end for a few minutes. David says clearly that following God faithfully and walking in responsive obedience to the things that he showed us clearly in his word, his commands, regulations, decrees that are written down in the Bible, as I walk in obedience to those things, there are positive consequences that flow into my life. So let me ask you this. What positive actions are you and I taking today that are going to bear fruit in the future? What positive things are you building into your life that are going to bear fruit in the future? One of the clearest things I can think of here is Scripture intake. When you put God's Word into your life on a consistent basis, it does so many good things. The Bible's clear. It's going to help guard and protect your life against sin. When you take a positive action of slowing down and reading God's word and taking it into your heart, listening and learning from him, that is going to bear positive fruit in your life. That's why we have our Project 345 
that we encourage people to do. It's a bit of a journaling plan, and there's a bookmark you can grab at the Welcome Center that describes it for you. Because people say, oh, I'm too busy. I just, I just could never develop a habit of reading God's Word. Project 345, it is one chapter of the New Testament, five days a week. On average, a chapter takes three minutes and 45 seconds to read through. And so if you've got three minutes and 45 seconds in your day, you've got time to hear from God in His Word. And so I'd encourage you and challenge you, pick it up this summer. We're in 2 Corinthians. It's a great place to jump in, and you can just start right away on today's date, 2 Corinthians 10, and it explains how to journal on the back there. Make a habit this summer. Develop a new habit of putting Scripture into your life that's going to bear positive fruit. Let me give you another example, because sometimes the consequences that flow and the blessings that flow into our lives don't happen in the short term. They happen 